Good morning. Just in uh, the past few weeks, some friends of mine from Romania whose church is celebrating its centenary. Uh, they've been going uh, for a uh, hundred years. They take uh, a little bit of time in the service just to review the history of the church and look back at the different things that have been happening uh, and tracing God's faithfulness in it. Uh, one of the fascinating things is the beginnings of the journey. So uh, obviously if you do the maths, even I can do that. 1923 uh, was the beginning of the church and particularly probably the, the first 30, 40 years have been very turbulent. Uh, it, it is a Baptist church, and uh, uh, any uh, what they're known as new Protestant uh, denominations or any evangelicals in Romania have faced all the way from the in between the war uh, times all the way to the communist time persecution very heavily. So it's interesting that uh, in the first part, that was a very pro-Nazi government uh, of Marshal Antonescu. And uh, obviously anybody who wasn't part of the state church, the Orthodox Church, was persecuted. So Jews uh, alongside evangelicals were often sent to death camps or on uh, incredible tribulations in prison. And listening to the history... It's always fascinated me, and this is true all around the world in different places. What can make somebody suffer greatly and unjustly and do so with resilience? There's a brilliant quote by Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a survivor of the Holocaust and a Peace Nobel Prize laureate. And in one of the addresses that he gave, I think it was actually the address that he gave in 1986, as he received the Nobel Prize, he came up with this unbelievably powerful sentence. That is, it's, it's really deep. And this is what he said. Hope is the memory of the future. And if you read a little bit more or listen to what Elie Wiesen had to write or say, you would find out that very much this question bothered him all along. Uh, apart from the tragedy of what happened in the concentration camps, he was often fascinated by that question, what made somebody who shared the same cell uh, and often been in the next bed with a similar health sometimes survive, and another person absolutely similar to them, they've just given up hope. And he very much honed in in all the work that he has done trying to say that there is something deep within every single one of us, that if it's there and if it's powerful, it can help you sometimes go through some incredibly tough challenges. And that is hope. We're embarking on a journey today of uh, looking at the letter the Apostle Peter wrote to the believers that was scattered in modern-day Turkey. And very much at the heart of the letter, it's this. It's the hope that we have in Christ in the face of difficult, unjust persecution. So what we're going to do this morning is try to get a little bit of the big picture of what is happening. And if you imagine uh, uh, doing a jigsaw puzzle, any jigsaw puzzle fans in here, it's, uh, it's incredibly uh, relaxing and also frustrating. It's that beautiful mixture of both. 
But one of the things, if somebody was to bring you a jigsaw puzzle and just came at the door and knocked at the door and just gave you this big, and let's, let's say it's, a, it's one of those big ones. Uh, Linda, what's the biggest one you've done? How many pieces? 1,500. Just imagine somebody comes at Linda's door with a bag with 1,500 pieces of the puzzle and says, here you go. Good luck with that. There is something missing. What you need is the box and the picture that is very often on the box that will help you to see how you need to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. And this is what we're going to do today as we launch into the, the book. is trying to piece uh, something of a canvas of the backdrop of the letter so we can better understand the different pieces of the puzzles, uh, puzzle and how they fit in. And uh, we're going to continue this journey over the next few weeks as we look at Peter's encouragement to a church that is in suffering. Can I just say, can I encourage you over the next week, so we're probably going to camp over the next couple of months in the book. Would you please try to read the book of 1 Peter at least once a week? You will realize when you begin to read it, it's not, it's straightforward, but it's not easy. And the more you read it, the more you discover gems and you begin to see more and more different things in there. So can I encourage you to do, that would be your best preparation and the best way to get the most out of the book is to actually keep reading it and uh, engage with it, with the different things that are there. And this is how it starts. First Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. There is quite a lot of this big picture that you have, if you keep tracking with the image of the puzzle, on the box. So here is the first thing I probably want to say. Who wrote the letter and to whom did they write it? And the clues are, are very helpful in there. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, scattered to the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, and we've heard a few messages recently uh, about Peter's own life. And we, we track with him right from the very beginning when he was a fisherman. And Jesus recruited him to be part of his team. And along the journey with Jesus, he comes across as somebody who is a leader in the making. He is very engaged. He is probably a type A personality, very full-on, no half-heartedness in Peter. And we see him giving the right answers, which makes Jesus say to him, his original name was Cephas, and uh, Peter calls him the rock. Simon was his original name. He changes it to Cephas. 
And then he becomes Peter, which is a translation of that name, which means the rock. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're somebody upon which I will build my church. You're going to be a leader. You're going to be somebody who's going to be influential in the church. And he is. And he stands out a lot of the times. Until a particular journey, and Ian traveled with us as we explored Peter's fall, when he betrays Jesus, although he, would, he had been warned, he betrays Jesus three times. And he weeps bitterly. And then Jesus comes after his resurrection and restores him and commissions him to be one that will shepherd the flock, that will look after the lambs and the sheep. So quite a journey. And then we find at the outpouring at Pentecost, Peter being the one who stands up and speaks and addresses the bemused gathering of people who are thinking, what on earth is going on here? And he going through the Old Testament, points out to Jesus and invites people to respond in repentance to Jesus. So this is the author who writes this. He's Peter. He's somebody who has incredible credibility because he had been with Jesus. He's somebody who really experienced close, up close, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, what Jesus was like. And he's the one that writes the letter. But I love his self-description. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That talks about his humility. And in a day and age when we see significant leaders fall, and there's one scandal story breaking after another, and very often they are connected to the big platforms, to the big movements, to the big events. And it's so refreshing to see Peter's very own self-description. I mean, he could have just said, Peter, dude who used to hang out with Jesus. Peter, remember, the one that walked on water. Peter, the one that Jesus said, I will build my church upon you. None of that. There's such a humble attitude. And actually, everything about Peter is about Jesus. It's not about his name. It's not about his brand. It's not about his experiences. It's not about his achievements. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's clear there. Peter doesn't want anybody to be under confusion. It's about Jesus. This is who I am. I am all about Jesus. And then he calls himself an apostle or an ambassador, a sent man from Jesus. That's his ministry. That's what he received to be a servant of Christ. It had nothing to do with his fame. It had nothing to do with anything else apart from Christ and his calling. So Peter's identity. Don't, please don't miss this. This is crucial. This is how you pray for your leaders. This is, if you're a leader, how you want to be known. This is not a side comment. This is crucial. This is gold here. His identity is rooted in nothing of himself and everything about Christ. It is about Christ and Christ's calling to service. We live in a world in which there's an epidemic 
of insecurity that just craves for leaders, for self-adulation that actually is based on popularity, on likes, on people just saying the right things and the nice things about you. And when that doesn't happen, the leader's identities begin to crumble. And when that doesn't happen, the leaders begin to demand it. Nothing like that in Peter. So important to see this. This is coming from a man who walked with Jesus and a man who was humble. A man with no other agenda than the agenda of the king with a capital K. King Jesus himself. And he writes to, he calls them God's elect, exiles or sojourners. Different versions put it in a different way. Scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia. Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's very likely in Rome at the time, which he, in coded language, calls Babylon, for obvious purposes. If you know your Old Testament, Babylon was a terrible place for God's people, was a place of compromise. and, And at the time, he probably writes from Rome and writes in a coded language saying, I'm in a place of great idolatry in Babylon, and I'm writing to you, those who are scattered believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. And it's that part of the northern part of Turkey. Though you, you can uh, get an idea where these churches, these believers were gathered. That he writes to them. It's not known really um, who planted those churches. We know that at a particular point in his journey... Paul had been stopped from going into one of those areas. He couldn't go into Bithynia. We know from the day of Pentecost, it's that passage where preachers often try to skip over, where he talks about all the different people who are coming from different parts of the empire gathered at Jerusalem. These churches, you'd, if you've got a good memory, you probably recognize some of these names because the believers were there. At the day of Pentecost. It could have been that at the day of Pentecost, people became filled with the Spirit, they became followers of Jesus, and they went back home and they started congregation. Or it could have been that some of the early church leaders were involved. We don't know for sure. One thing is clear that you have in that part of modern day Turkey, uh, the, particularly the northern part, the top part, you have congregations that Peter is writing to. And really, When Peter is writing to them, he wants to encourage them. He calls them God's elect. That's their identity. He's saying to them, remember who you are. You are the one that God has chosen. The one that, as we already celebrated with eating the bread and drinking the cup, Jesus had given his life for. The one that God has called. Remember, you're not a nobody. You're not somebody insignificant. In God, you are significant because you are God's elect. And then he says you are scattered, scattered exiles. Now, when it comes to exiles, it's probably metaphorical or spiritual rather than an exact term. It isn't that those people were exiled. They probably lived there all their life. But spiritually speaking, they were in exile. What do we mean by that? They lived as those chosen by God, the followers of Jesus, in the midst of a pagan cultural 
context. So they were in exile. They were not at home, spiritually speaking. They weren't in a natural, friendly, loving environment. They were in a very hostile environment. And that's why he calls them like that. And it's, it's, it's that double identity, two sides of the same coin, chosen by God. Whoa, come on. Scattered exile. Oh. But that's their identity, those to whom Peter writes. He says, this is who you are. Both those things are true, and they're living at the same time. You are not at home, spiritually speaking, in the culture that you are in. This would have been a great challenge for those people that lived in that area. From both points of view, there were people who were naturally living in a pagan environment with many, many gods and many, many practices. And on top of that, you had the Roman Empire who was beginning to crack down heavily on Christianity. So it was an influence that was both spiritual in terms of the idol worship that was there, as well as political, which was beginning to see Christianity as a banned religion. So two bits of pressure that were weighing very heavily upon them. So why is Peter writing to them? And what is he saying to them? This is what he says. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with the blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This was a time when persecution began to break out seriously for all those who were following Christ. From history lessons, you would remember Nero, who was a little bit mad, and I'm probably being very generous towards him. But one of the things is Nero began to set fire to Rome, and at the time what this was happening, because he, he had this amazing project in his head that he wanted to rebuild Rome, and people weren't very happy about it, as you can imagine. People began, began to be very disenchanted and protest against it, and he needed a group that would be scapegoats. And he chose Christians. And that was the beginning of fierce, fierce persecution. And Christians began to be seen as scapegoats for that. Obviously, that was carried on by all the other Roman emperors that followed on. And very much at the heart of what Peter is trying to do, he's trying to address those people who were living under persecution in a hostile cultural situation. And that's why he writes the letter and he continuously reminds them of this. At the heart of the letter is, is, is this verse, 1 Peter 2.20, the second part. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is probably one of the most anti-prosperity gospel letters you could ever find. Because the, at the very heart of it, what Peter is trying to say you are suffering unjustly, and actually, the way you do, the way you respond to this is absolutely crucial. And some of the things that you will read, they will feel really uncomfortable. Because your heart would say, I want to kick back against this suffering. And it seems like Peter is saying, be very careful about how you respond to this. So it's very, very challenging. But he's trying to address the situation of suffering. And what he does, 
You have two different styles, and you can see it if you study Peter and Paul's sermons. Peter tends to be very logical. When Peter writes an epistle, he tends to start with a, a greeting, or what theologians call a salutation. And after the greeting, you have chunks of theology. Think of the, the book of Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. You have a chunk of theology. And then you have some application and then you have the ending with a bit of personal kind of greetings to so-and-so and pass and just a little bit of a personal note of it. Peter doesn't write like that. And it's probably the, the, the contrast of two different types of personalities and probably two that were shaped by slightly different worlds. I think Paul, although he was a Jew, you know, right to the very bone, he had a great understanding of how the Greek and Roman world functioned and particularly their mindsets so he writes in a very logical way while Peter what he does is he weaves in theology and practice all together when you're in bible college you can have uh, and you, you take a course in, in in preaching and particularly homiletics very often your tutors would have two different ways of dealing with application and I've heard and seen all of them in different ways. Some tutors would say to you as a young trainee student, make application as you go along in your sermon. Don't wait till the end because people might be asleep by the time you go to the end. <laughs> Others are saying, no, no, no. Just do what Paul did. Put the theology in and then at the end bring the application. And there isn't a right or a wrong way to do it. And this is what Peter is doing here. He's not waiting to bring the application at the end, but he just weaves in theology, application, theology, application, theology, application. And one of the theological things that he keeps bringing, actually, you would find, is the gospel. Told in different ways. It's very basic, really basic. So he continuously, throughout the whole letter, he brings a reminder of the simplicity of Jesus died for you in order to save you from your sins. And this is why you should Suffer well. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. And constantly he puts this little markers of gospel, 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 gospel. Just a simple good news of what Jesus had come to do all throughout the letter. It's a particularly fascinating style that you'll discover as you begin to read this. And this is what he does here right at the very beginning. He introduces himself. He tells us who he's writing to, and probably this letter circulated by hand in all these different churches. Somebody went and took it, and either the leaders of the church read it out, or probably somebody else that uh, took the letter would be writing it out. And here is a little bit of the gospel that I, I keep telling you that he, he brings in. And it's simple. He talks about what the... the, the, the it's, and it, again, it's really beautiful because it's a Trinitarian work. And again, you might say, you're kind of losing me here. It's a bit boring. You know, why are you talking about Trinitarian? What is this is really important and really significant, and I'll tell you why. Because most of us tend to have an affinity with one person of the Trinity. Some people just love Jesus, but they're not so close on the Father, not so close on the Spirit. Other people love the Spirit, but they're kind of not comfortable with the Father. And, well, everybody's kind of okay with Jesus. But what he's trying to do, he's putting the whole package and saying, don't divide the three. Don't divide the three. 
A healthy spirituality, a healthy understanding will have all three with equal value. You don't separate. You get this mad thing that, that, that started probably about 20 years ago, red-letter Christians, with a reference to, I, I mean, I, hey, I, I don't buy Bibles that have got red letters. They do my nothing. You know, I just think, you know, it's all God's word. It's not just the words of Jesus. Don't split it apart. Don't make that. But then you have these people, or red-letter Christians, who are like, it's all about Jesus, just Jesus, Jesus. I, I'm not comfortable with something that it says there, and I'm not comfortable with that. And you, you can't do that. I, I understand the sentiment. We can't do that. And again, what Peter is saying is don't split the Father from the Son and the Spirit. They all three work together for our salvation. So the Father in his father, the, the Father had a plan. The Father came up with this idea. And, and, and the, the Spirit is the one that enables us to understand this, opens our mind. And Jesus is the one who gave himself. So sprinkled with blood is that reference. So you get the picture. All three are involved. The Father plans it. The Spirit reveals it. The Son fulfills it. And that's the gospel. And right at the very beginning, he's saying, this is who you are. You are loved by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the core heart of the message, of their identity, who they are. And then he says, I'm, I'm praying. It's not, it's not just a catchphrase, grace and peace be to you. It's like, oh, grace and peace be to you. What, you, you know. No, it's meaningful. What did they need in the face of living with persecution in a culturally hostile world? They needed grace. Because people were mean to them. You need to be gracious. When they were terrified, what did they need? They needed peace. So those things that Paul is wishing them prayerfully are the things that they need. In that situation. So what about us now? What does this all have to do with us? What's the connection with us? Well, I would dare to say that our cultural context is either already resembling a little bit of the challenges that those believers in the north of minor Asia were experiencing. Or it's heading that way. We live in a cultural context where increasingly it's a real challenge to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. It may not seem likely to you, but our preaching plan is actually intentional. We don't just kind of go, you know, let's throw our books of the Bible in the air and kind of go, oh, let's just see what we're going to do next. Intentionally, we're looking at 1 Peter because we believe this is significant for you, for us all in our environment. Because we have to understand how to live in exile, how to live as sojourners, as Peter was writing, those who were scattered exiles in that situation. And I think we see already the occurrence of what can be either a ideological hostility. If you hold on to what the Bible proclaims to be true, you will increasingly find yourself in a situation where that is beginning to clash with the culture that we live in. And you're fine as long as a Christian you do charity work. Great, thumbs up. But the moment there is an ideological issue in which you say, I'm sorry, but 
I am living my life with a mindset that is shaped by God's word and with a lifestyle that is shaped by God's word. And I cannot go along with this. There is a backlash. And like you, like me, we have a question to ask. Lord, how do we react? How do we respond to this? And that's why this letter hopefully would be very helpful to us in order to understand how we do it. And particularly, I think we need to have a theological understanding because that's the big question. And I, I remember posing the question to, to, to the students at Cape Ray when I'm lecturing in a Sermon on the Mount on one of the topics is persecution. And Jesus says, this is Sermon on the Mount. This is core teaching of Christ. This is not just from random passages obscure. Blessed, blessed, you want to get blessing in your life? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he continues, blessed are you when people say all kinds of evil things about you. Again, I'd, I'd love to see a Christian company print some of these demotivational posters. You know, blessed are you. Put it in your living room. Blessed are you. I want blessing. I want blessing when you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. And I said it to the students at Cape I, I posed them a question. And I tell you what, it's a good question for us. Imagine that your pastor in your church preaches something that is biblical, but falls kind of against what the rule of the land is. And the church is sued. Should the church fight that, or should the church accept that? Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It's a really, really interesting conundrum. I'm not going to give you an answer because I don't have it. But it's very challenging because our instinct is to say, but you will find yourself reading the scriptures and it seems, it seems like there's a challenge to that. How do we respond to persecution? And that's why we need to have a good theological foundation, which I think listening to the words that Peter is writing to the scattered believers will help us with that. But also it will give us something practical. You know, at the end of the day, it is very practical. It is not just about ideology, but it's practice. Somebody at work says something bad about you because you're a Christian. How, how do you respond to that person? How do you respond with regards to other people at work? So it comes, becomes incredibly practical. And hopefully some of the things that we will look at will be of great help to us. At the end of the day, the whole letter lives with this beautiful connection between the two that are true. You are blessed by God. You are chosen by God. You are loved by God. You are suffering unjustly from the people around you who are hostile to the teaching of Christ and the kingdom of God. And the two can coexist. And this is my prayer that as we journey with this, we will have a greater ability to understand how we ourselves fit in with this and allowing our mindsets to be shaped not by politics. I think it's the greatest prayer that I have at the moment. I'm absolutely disturbed at how much our mindsets are shaped by political ideologies instead of the word of God. 
And it isn't that any of the political ideologies are, ideologies are all wrong or all right. But my question is, I don't want to hear what politician X or party X says. I want to hear what God's word says. Because ultimately and primarily, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I think we need to deliver ourselves from that and so dwell in this that it so shapes our thinking and behavior and language that we end up, like the early believers, standing out in the midst of the empire, empire spiritually speaking, as the citizens of another kingdom with an incredibly powerful way. Somebody writing about this said, as Peter speaks about the identity of Christians and what it means to know Christ, Peter mentions one privilege after another, one blessing after another. And interwoven into this list of privileges is the catalog of suffering. Christians, though most greatly privileged, should also know that the world will treat them unjustly. And that's the truth that we launch ourselves into this journey, saying, Spirit of God, teach us how to live as sojourners in this world in a way that we are not cantankerous and hostile. We are not people with a victim mentality. But we are people of a different kingdom, spirit-filled, pushing forward, honoring the king of kings, and living with integrity on the narrow way, whatever comes in our path. As the band comes back, let us just take a moment of reflection and maybe think of the situations that we are aware and pray that God will come and help us shape our mindset, rewire our hearts in such a way that maybe like never before, we are better equipped to engage with the world that we live in and live in such a way that we are, what Jesus said, salt that brings taste, good taste, and light that enlightens the darkness.